0: We all know the feeling of Christmas time coming and not knowing what to give the loved ones. Nobody wants another uninspired voucher under the tree. This year we've got you covered with the new Australian Geographic Christmas gift guide, including telescopes, games, and educational toys. Get your Christmas shopping right this year and shop at QBD Books or online at AustralianGeographic.com forward slash catalogue. Hi, I'm Chrissy Goldick, and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Today, I'm talking to Andrew Gregory. Andrew is well known to readers of Australian Geographic as an intrepid remote area photographer. He's also an awarded adventurer. But today, we're talking to Andrew about powerful owls, and in particular, the ones that live in his own backyard. Andrew has become a passionate conservationist since a family of powerful owls moved in next door. So I'm really excited to be talking owls with Andrew Gregory. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Chrissy. Good to have you here. Uh, in, in our little studio, a long way from uh, the kind of environments that we usually find you. As I say, there's great big uh, sweeping landscapes when you've been uh, shooting all around Australia for Australian Geographic. You're one of our remote area photographers. You have absolutely no problem packing all of your gear into a four-wheel drive and taking off for weeks on end to get those amazing photographs in those very remote areas. Uh, but I can't really move on to that smaller environment that I just spoke about without actually returning to that reference to the rather close encounter with a saltwater crocodile that you had when you were on your expedition to the Ord River back in 2006. So tell us a little bit about what happened that day.
1: That, that day was quite an epic uh, day because I could see it coming. Um, we had been warned by people that used to fish up in the upper reaches of the Ord River, that there would be we would encounter saltwater crocodiles. And this is a long, long this is the bottom end of Lake Argyle, which is about 100 kilometres deep at that stage, um, and a long, long, long way from the coast. And we'd already been paddling down. We started at the Negro River, and then we went down that comes into the Ord River, and we knew that we'd reached the bottom end of Lake Argyle when we stopped having the water flow, when the water went still and when then we had to put the hard work of paddling you're right, into the kayak Because you're in, into you're in a pair of yeah. kayaks
0: at the time.
1: That's right. So up until that point, we'd been um, kayaking through rapids and cascades and really, really clear water with lots of freshwater crocodiles and big freshwater crocodiles. Up there, they're, they're so big, they have like stripes on them. They, um they 're very very you know well well over two meters so um, these
0: are the freshes, but you 're not worried about the fresh waters even when no we 'd seen
1: so many fridges we bumped into them and um, um, you know they get close, but uh, we weren 't particularly concerned about we we 'd seen so many by that stage, but uh, we um reached this uh, section of the um, river that was different color because it, it had a lot of sediment, the river suddenly got very wide and there were sandy banks with reeds on them and we camped that night and that next morning we headed off and it was dead still um and very hot and it we felt like we were heading off into this sort of unknown <laughs> area where we might encounter the freshwater and we we'd see we see uh, wallabies on the side of the um the river on the banks so it was prime place for a, a crocodile and um, for a saltwater, I mean. And I think it was probably getting towards lunchtime um, that I was out in the middle of the uh, river and I thought I'd seen something before that, but then um, like, a, a, you know, something in the water, something moving. Like a log. Well, no, actually ripples. And, right. And, you know, ah, movement in clues. the water. Mm. Um. And I think probably the biggest clue that something was different was we started to see less freshwater crocodiles Mm -hmm. Um, because we were seeing them all the time. And then it just became this big, still wide river. And I remember Kieran had gone over to the the right bank and he was paddling under the shade of the trees. And so it was quite a distance between us. And I just think that I was, because I was filming at the time too, I had a camera, I, had a, I still had a video camera with me on, on the deck all the time. And I think I must have seen, um, looking back now, I think it was probably some wallabies or um, something on the side of the bank which, which attracted my attention. And then um, I just saw this uh, crocodile crocodile. In the water, big crocodile coming straight for me, (laughs) (laughs) right? And he was as big as my kayak. And my kayak, um, well, he may not be as big as my kayak, but pretty close to it. Like, my kayak was five meters long, I would say it's probably more like a three meter long crocodile, yeah. Um, Mm. and he looked me straight in the eye, and then, um, I actually got some footage. I actually picked up the camera and took about 6 seconds like of, a good AG photographer should <laughs> that's right <laughs> uh, I, I couldn't think of what else to do but um and then he went under the water and he went under under the kayak and i could just see this ring of bubbles sort of coming up around the kayak and so because i sort of knew a bit about how crocodiles worked i knew that he'd just gone to the bottom under the kayak and he was just sitting there and so I just sat there perfectly still for I don't know probably 10 or 15 minutes I think quite a while and by that stage Kieran had seen that something was a bit weird I I wasn't making any noise I was trying to be quiet but he'd gone to the shore and eventually I thought well you know I have to get out of here somehow.
0: (laughs) So was that the right Thing to do is to not move you didn't really think to start paddling madly away or anything you thought no i need to stay yeah, still well,
1: that's right i think um i wasn't really sure what to do but i think that i assumed that this is a crocodile that hadn't seen anything like a big red kayak ever and was just curious you know um and if i just tried to not make any sort of movement or you know not to disturb him um, hopefully he was just gonna go away, leave me alone. <laughs> and I, um, but he didn't go yeah, away. Yeah, eventually did he, I, I remember know. paddling to the shore with just the tips of my paddle, like just as slowly mm. as I could. And I, we got to the shore, and we 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 sat down and we um we had had some lunch and we waited probably a good hour, and we he we did still didn't see him come up. Right, and then we decided, well, let's go, and we just headed... Um, so you got we back in we got were, back we in that off. And we were sort of way. quite close to the shore, like I say, on this shadowed sort of bank, and we, we just kept going. We must have paddled another 10 kilometres or so, and then we got to this big, big bend in um, the river, and on that bend was this huge slide, a huge crocodile slide. Right,
0: and that would have belonged to that
1: crocodile. Yeah, or another even bigger one. Right. It was an enormous slide. And we stayed there for a little while and then we just thought that we'll, we'd just keep going. And that night, I remember that was quite a, a scary night because we got to this sort of confluence of all the other rivers and it's just a big wetland. And we were, um, we we spent ages trying to find somewhere to actually... Yeah, there's nowhere
0: to haul yourselves out. I do, yeah, I so we that just you... found this
1: narrow strip of land... Um, which was really just big enough for a tent and um, because we were just, like, sleeping in the inners of tents. And that's where we spent the night, knowing that there were crocodiles <laughs> around.
0: Oh, well, yeah. look, uh, that's a pretty scary story. And I, I would say that, you know, I, I don't know how you, whether you remember what you felt like when you were sitting there like a sitting duck in that kayak. Were yeah. you scared?
1: Yeah, I was scared. Yeah, yeah. I, I bet was you scared. were scared. Yeah, yeah well, And like I, I say, because I'd had an injury too, um, hmm. I wasn't that quick, you know. Kieran was paddling much quicker than I was um, mm. and I had a lot more gear too, so um, yeah. it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we still had so far to go. We hadn't even reached the proper bottom end yeah, of Lake so you're Harder, coming down, so like the Ord
0: River comes down and then it was dammed back in the 19... 19- 20s, I think, or was it the 50s? Anyway, we'll Can't find out about it. that. And then it, it, it created Lake Argyle, which is a really huge body of water. And that's, uh, that's obviously where right. you were heading for.
1: Yeah, we, and we were fo- once we got into Lake Argyle, we followed the course of the original Ward River. And that was sort of our intention to try to get a perspective of what, what it had been like before the dam. Mm. And it would have been stunning.
2: We'll take a quick break and be back in a moment. We have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia.
0: That's uh, one of your many
2: adventures whilst
0: um, un- undergoing uh, Australian Geographic business. And that did get you the award, Spirit of Adventure. Mm. And we're very happy that both you and Kieran sort of came out of that uh, in w- more or less in one piece. Um, and you've had many adventures since then. But I think we're here today to talk about a much smaller scale adventure that you're currently having... Um, in your own backyard. And um, this is a sort of a year uh, that we're talking a lot at Australian Geographic about the amazing things that we can find without having to go too far because in this year of 2020, many of us can't go very far and we haven't been able to wander too far from our own backyards for months now. So uh, there is uh, magic to be found there and uh, that's what you have found in the back garden of your new house. When I say new house, you moved in about four years ago. So tell us a little bit about where your house is uh, and and start to tell us the story of the unfolding story of uh, the whole wildlife haven that exists in your own backyard.
1: Um, I've, it's, my place is in the uh, Northern Beaches of Sydney and it's a, um, it, it's one of those, it, 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 the house is one of the original properties in the area and it was built where it was because it was on a small waterfall and there would have been pools next to the house when they first built it. So it's a bit weird. It sort of like, doesn't face the same way as all the other houses because it was actually, built before the roads were even there. So um, at the back of it, and this is quite similar in a lot of places in Sydney, um, there's a a rainforest gully with with literal rainforest remnants in it. And that section behind us wouldn't have had a house because we couldn't have accessed it and it's too steep. So they're the sort of areas that get left and turned into reserves or just become places that uh, are inaccessible. And if they are owned, sometimes they aren't even built on um and it's the water that makes our place pretty much a special spot. It's got it's got a lot of um spotted gums, tall eucalyptus spotted gums, but the, the water cascades down and has a series of pools and little waterfalls and then it actually flows right underneath our house. So when it rains we get really big deluges, but in between time it's like uh Stream-fed, so there's always a trickle of water, and there's always these little pools, and that's the key thing that attracts the wildlife, and that's also allowed the sort of habitat to build up. And we get, you know, we got species like cheese trees and um, cabbage palms, and as well as tall gums on the edge of this sort of like little rainforest patch along the creek, and then it's more a woodland to the side of it, mm. and that actually has. Um, contributed to, to quite a, a range of species, relying on that little pocket as a place to live and a place to to uh, breed and a place to also um, seek shelter. Yeah.
0: Know? So tell us, um, y- you've obviously got the kind of species that most of us might spot in our backyards, possums. Or
1: yeah, back- we have all all the, there's ringtail possums, brushtail possums, bandicoots. And um, But we've got other things. You know, we have bats. Or we don't have a bat colony, but we have bats coming into the palms frequently.
0: Small, like micro bats? Or, we have or micro bats. bats,
1: yeah. We right. actually have something really unusual, which is a, a quite ancient stand of giant bamboo, which was planted maybe even 100 years ago or 70 years ago. It's It's huge. And that's actually sort of... Acting like a giant fig tree, and there are um, holes in that, and it's actually full of native bees and microbats all breeding in there. Okay,
0: so there doesn't always have to be native plants to provide habitat for species. No, it's exotic, but it it is a big habitat um,
1: magnet. Interesting. Yeah, Mm. because the bamboo, like the bamboo is probably as thick as my leg, it it is really long, up to 30 meter high. It's a type of bamboo they use for scaffolding in. you know, certain countries. But um, when it splits, it forms great little uh, pockets for animals to nest in, like mic- microbats particularly, mm. and also the the native bees. Mm.
0: Now, you were out uh, with your lovely wife, Marcel, one night um, when you first moved in, and and you heard some bird sounds that you perhaps didn't really recognise, that you didn't know. Some sounds started coming in no. the garden. Yeah. Tell us that story.
1: Well, one, one thing... One thing I've learnt after travelling, and Marcel and I both say this after travelling all over the place and spending so many nights out um, out bush, is that if you if you thought you heard something, you actually did hear something. <laughs> so we learned to trust our ears, and Marcel's got really uh, good hearing, and she picked up this sound, which was um, like a high pitched trilling sort of noise um she picked it up straight away it's been something she hadn't heard before and when she first heard it i actually couldn't hear it so i had to wait probably another week before she kept saying i can hear the sound can hear and she'd go outside and um tell me and and um eventually i i did hear it it's it's a really high trilling high pitch trilling Noise and it's quite sheer, very, very high sort of range and um, it was quite continuous and it was obviously a um, baby calling its mother but we, we couldn't work out what species it was. Like We didn't know whether it was a bird or whether it was an animal or a, mm-hmm. a glider or some type of thing like that. This was in winter so we'd been having, um, we sort of got a back out fire pit, we'd been having fires out the back and one night we were sitting around the fire and... Um, suddenly (laughs) there was this huge baby power flower just perched right above us it just flew in we heard the sound getting closer and closer and then it just landed only a few meters away from us and was fascinated with the uh fire and with us i think and um we were just blown away because uh the baby power flowers are just absolutely gorgeous all white on their chest and they've got this weird sort of uh, habit of bobbing back and forth and moving their head around because their eyes don't sort of move in their sockets. They move their head to see things. They can turn their head sort of, yeah, so they they move their head to see different directions and they're constantly moving around and they can turn their head right upside down. They look upside down at you and um, back and forth and they trill and and they get so excited, you know, they're just amazing things and And they can't fly very well because they haven't got a tail feather so they just sort of crash into things you know Mm. um so it, it sort of crashed into the trees right above where we were and um we spent most of the night watching it and then the next morning there it was in um in a tree just near our backyard with mum and dad roosting there. All so all three of them
0: together. Yeah, then. all three of them together. Yeah. And did you go looking for them? What did is that what happened? Did you get up the next morning and think I wonder if it's close by? Would, well, I just even, went out the back door and I could spot? see it. I could right. see it from
1: our back door. It's right there. So right. so I come pretty much close to right where our back door is is a little sort of pool and a waterfall and above it above that there's some um Cheese trees with a nice canopy and it was just roosting in that area there.
0: And how did you know it was a powerful owl? Is that just because you know your owls or it was just the size sheer size. Tell us yeah, about well, um, Tell us about powerful owls.
1: A powerful owl it's it to start with, it's a very big bird. So it, it's the largest of our owl species and it's I've actually got a picture of um, a life-size picture of a powerful owl, and I, I would say, you know, it's about sixty-five centimeters. A male owl, so it's wow. it's really from your head to your waist. Yeah. It's like you're talking that about big, that size. That's a big owl. Mm-hmm. That's a big bird, and its wingspan is is about one point four meters, almost one metres. and a half meters, and it's got this distinctive sort of feathers. Where if you if you get a powerful owl feather, it's sort of banded. It's like a dark brown and a, and a light brown. Like a stripe on the feather, and on their chest they've got these. It's it's mostly white, but then they've got brown V-shaped chevrons. Almost looks like a bird in flight on their chest, and they've got uh, around their face they've got a distinctive mask, um, like black feathers around their face on a lighter coloured face, and then um, big yellow feet with feathers on them. Really. Really big feet and big black talons, you know really and the long eyes talons.
0: as well yellow as well in the
1: eyes the eyes are, are stunning they 're really, really bright, bright, searingly bright yellow, and um, a big black iris and I photographed them so much with with my camera, I can actually see the iris moving, contracting or dilating it's it's changing size and um, the males have a, a squarer head than the females. Females have a much rounder head. And um, when they fly at night, they um, are completely silent. They've, they've got a ruffled edge to their feathers. So um, that, that makes them silent and quiet. That's, that's, most owls are like that. If you mm. look at sort of like a magpie feather and you hear a magpie fly, quite it's got quite a sheer edge, but, but the owls have got this ruffled edge to their feathers. So that they can
0: fly in stealth. Yeah, they're completely silent. It's yeah. quite
1: like I've, I watch them sometimes at night, um, at dusk. They will they will go up to a high tree, ready to ready to fly off, and then without warning, they'll just spread their wings and they're mm. gone. And they just glide, and it's completely silent. Mm, how you don't wonderful. hear a thing. Yeah.
0: And so you, you you spotted the three of them. What were they doing? I mean, were they out in the middle of the, was that in the middle of the day or was?
1: Yeah, that was in the middle of the day. So because. Um, like I've described all the, all the sort of the nature of of our place, it's a perfect roost site for a powerful owl. So um, that's where they hang out during the day. And according to different sort of conditions, like whether it's windy or hot or cold, they'll um, go to different trees. Like there's trees they prefer if it's windy, if it's hot. Um, they'll, there's trees that are, have more shelter over them. Um, so, so yeah, they, they, they roost around, and I can sort of work out where they'll be just according to the weather.
0: And are they territorial? So is that their territory? That's it? their territory. So they will yeah. always be there.
1: That's you know, right. So, so, so um, they have, we have a nest tree, which is a, a big old grey gum with a um, hollow in it, and that's where they breed. And that's sort of in the bushland area. But um, to have a successful breeding couple they've got to have uh, an adequate sized nest tree but the nest tree has to be in, in an area that will function as as like a nursery for the for the baby owls because the the baby owls take so long to mature and they their um, parents have to teach them how to hunt and really you know they'd have to learn how to fly so it's good you know 5 to 6 months before they can look after themselves right. so they they need to sort of, from when they fledged, be in that area where, where they can sort of hang out. So what would happen from then on once we saw that owl is um, mum and dad would go off hunting in the evening and they would leave the owl there. So uh, you need that sort of nursery, that, that sort of area where the the babies can And the babies stay.
0: explore on their own. I guess that's what yeah, that mum was doing right. when it came down to that's say right. hello and to you. They
1: got to the stage where um because they'd seen us from the moment they fledged, they um this first owl became Really, quite sort of attached to us, and Marcel could go to the back door and call, and she could she could imitate the trill perfectly, which like, <laughs> I'm not very good at, but she's really good at doing that, and it would actually it would actually come to her.
0: Is that something we can yeah. hear? Shall we have a little bit of a listen yeah. to the uh, the trill of the, the little owl, so that we can at least start to hear what these owls sound like? You know, because as you say, that's right. Yeah. You often hear the birds before you see them, and it's and it's good um, to know. So I'm just going to play a little soundtrack here.
1: I've spoken to people that also live in other areas near ours, and I've actually played that sound, and they they will go, "Oh, I've heard that," mm. and they don't know they don't know haven't they don't know what it is. Um, they just hear this weird sort of sound, and it's a really loud sound too. It carries for a long, long way. So that those sort of sounds here, that's on on that sound, you can hear the mother. She's calling to the baby, and sometimes you can hear the mother and she'll make these weird sort of sounds and calls basically telling the baby to come here or to go there or you know that she wants it to be quiet or she wants it to feed it and and the baby will get really really excited and we've we've sometimes like lying in bed at night listening to that right yes, outside our window. that's wonderful,
0: isn't it? Well, let's hear the, the sound of the pa- powerful owl itself because yep. I guess we all hear owl sounds but we don't necessarily know which uh, species we're listening to. This is the, and we'll probably play a couple of owl sounds so you can start to hear the difference. Uh, this is the male powerful owl.
1: Woo-hoo.
0: Now that is a sound that we might think we're hearing in our, you know, local sort of bushland or backyards. But let's also listen to the sound of the boobook, which might be something that perhaps more common. Uh, and so that we start to hear the difference between these owls. Now, I'm much more likely to hear something like the boobook. I think, especially in our backyards around Sydney. So. For somebody to be able to sort of hear that and listen to the powerful owl call and recognise it as that, that's something special and something that, you know, sort of for you started a journey really for you and Marcel in terms of your relationship with powerful owls. So tell us, you know, from the time that you first observed the owls and saw their behaviour, what happened after that in terms of powerful owls and the Gregories?
1: Well, because they became... Such a big part of our lives, uh, we, we, we were living oh, we still are we're living with these owls 24 hours a day, um, and we get to see we get to see every aspect of their life and, and the, the dramas and the traumas and all that sort of thing that goes with it. Um, we became involved with the um, Powerful owl project, which is a birdlife um, project, to, to basically monitor the owls. That we have to find out where they are, and really, um, it's all about sort of um, collecting data and protecting nest trees. So um, we'd sort of go out to different areas and find owls, or listen to owls, or discover owls in different locations. Um, And also, we I I grew grew to know what sort of by their calls actually. I'd sort of get to notice different behavior I'd sort of know what they what was happening by listening to them
2: We'll be right back with our conversation after this we have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just twenty four ninety nine. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only twenty four ninety nine for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia.
0: you've been observing your own powerful owls in your own backyard and obviously all these other powerful owls that you've gone out and you've been seeking in bushland in different areas so do you, this is like a citizens you're really like a citizen science now this is the powerful owls project is a citizen science project by run under the auspices of birdlife australia so how does it work what 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 actually do the volunteer participants do
1: well they have um Beth Mott is the person that I've been working with mostly. She's the coordinator of the project. She, she, they will run um, volunteer workshops where, where she will uh, tell people about the owls and what to look for and, um, and uh, go out in the field and identify all the, all the aspects that you need to know. It's, it's about like learning how to be like an owl tracker you know it's learning what to look for and like i can go out in a place now and if there is an owl around i'll find it fairly quickly because i've learnt to mm. to notice all the signs that go with that and they have an app um which you download um it's a it's a bird data app and you can um record your sightings as a survey and that's all um the locations are kept secret but um it it all goes into a database And that can be used principally to to protect protect the nest trees because it's very important that they are protected um, because they're such a significant aspect of the owl breeding, the um, the nest trees. But also it sort of helps record unusual behaviour that... um, um, Like this year... I had had something quite unusual happen. I was watching this owl in another reserve, this pair in in another reserve, and um, they had one owl that was about ready to fledge. So I'd I'd been going in there every day and and watching to see when this owl fledged. And we had a really hot day, and this was in September, and um, the owl came out of the, the baby owlet, came out of the hollow, and I thought, well, usually once they come out, they're fledged, and that's it. Um, and I went back the next day, and it had gone, it, it had got cold again, and had gone back into the, right. into the hollow, and it stayed in there for another three days before it then eventually came out. So that's, you know, that's uh, unusual behaviour.
0: Yeah. So you do do you find now that because you're spending so much time with this species that you yourself are witnessing behaviour that may not have been recorded before?
1: Oh yeah, I, I, I'm finding. Um, Very unusual. Like, for example, um, I have seen the owls hunting on the ground. Um, Everyone just assumes that they, um, it's always assumed that they just swoop in and take their prey, either on rooftops or, you know, from branches or, you know, arboreal sort of species in the actual trees. Um, But I have actually, and observing them quite frequently now, actually um, hunting on the ground sort of like a, a kookaburra would do. Where they actually actually sitting on the ground,
0: mm.
1: and then waiting till something goes past and then pouncing on it. Wow! And um, so yeah, like actually being on the ground a lot more than I Does would that have thought. Make uh,
0: them vulnerable being on the ground. Definitely, like
1: that? yeah, it definitely makes them more vulnerable and also makes them um, wary about being on the ground, which is you know like um, uh, yeah, I mean there's lots of threats obviously when they're on the ground. Um, mm. So, yeah, it is quite vulnerable. But no. th- that's the sort of thing they would do if they're, if they're hunting something like um, young brush turkeys.
0: Right, yeah. Which,
1: which will be on the ground, you know.
0: And that's uh, interesting because that just brings us really to the threats, which, um, I mean, it is a threatened species. Am I right about that, the, the powerful
1: owl? Yeah, it's, it's listed as vulnerable, but um, they've had such a, a bad year this year. Um, Far fewer owls fledging than, is than this normal th- the bushfire year or yeah, after this last bushfire year, so um the um status might might be revised might change, yeah they're yeah. becoming f- far more
0: vulnerable. And, uh, and tell us obviously, i mean quite clearly y- you 've got powerful owls in a patch of suburban bushland, so that immediately tells us a little bit of a story anyway, because as you say, it 's on such a steep slope. Uh, can't be built on. So habitat loss is obviously probably the greatest threat yep. to powerful owls. Um, and we know that that's uh, something that we know a little bit about. But tell us some of the other things that uh, impact this really sort of keystone kind of species.
1: Um, well, apart from the habitat loss, they're, they're very vulnerable to uh, collision. Um, they're either flying into uh, windows or getting hit by cars. I think probably 80% of their mortality every year is from car strike and that's because they will fly low over a road and they'll hunt on roads. And, I mean, the reason we're getting owls in the urban areas is because they're not actually doing that well in the bush. So they are moving into urban areas to try to catch prey and that's because for various reasons there's not as much prey in the bush as there used to be. And um, so, yeah, they—they—I I have observed them. They will—they will sort of roost or perch on the edge of roadways, and then swoop over and get hit by cars.
0: And is there anything really that I mean? I guess the cars—they, as we you were saying before—they're silent, they're dark. You know, they're stealth hunters. There's probably not an awful lot that the, the drivers can can really do. What about? Um are there in particular areas where, for instance, around where you are that, that signs go up warning drivers that there may, there may be owls flying?
1: It's something that I'd, I'd like my local council to do, but they're, they're sort of um, not really aware of that. i trying to, to educate people more about that um, because uh, like I've, I've released an owl from Taronga Zoo that um, Libby Hall there look, looks after the rescued owls and almost all the ones that she has in have been hit by collision by a car. And, and what happens with an owl when it, when it gets hit by a car, it might sort of look okay and then fly off eventually. Or, but but um, it, it might have a little fracture in, in its sort of head and then when it flies, the pressure of the flying um, can basically kill it. So um, they do need a long time to recover. So when when they're sort of brought in from a collision, they'll be they'll be in captivity for a month until they heal before they can be released.
0: And is that um, something that happens quite regularly? Do people pick them up and and rescue them and call wires or take them? To yeah,
1: well, I think um, uh, the, last year I think they had eight hours brought in, and four of them were actually ended up being released. Four of the, four actually died. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it does happen frequently. But um, uh, we we lost our first – the owl that fledged the first year um, and it lived to be about six months. It was hit by a car on our street. Oh, yes. And um, we didn't find out until we actually started speaking to the neighbours and somebody had actually buried it in their backyard um, if we hadn't have asked, we wouldn't have found out. But once that actually happened, we 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 it just went missing, and we actually watched the um, mum and dad grieving for it actually for about a week.
0: Right. Oh, yeah. That must have been very tragic for you guys as well, because you must have been watching it there for a while. Yeah, How it was just sad.
1: getting to that stage where it was um, becoming independent, and that was a young male, and um, then suddenly it was gone.
0: Yeah. And what happened? Did they, uh, what happened after that? Did they have another chick? And
1: yeah, they, that was, um, that was probably around, that was in the summer, and then they did start breeding again. So, um, it's usually around, I mean, they're real lovebirds around April, May. They had this whole courtship thing where they had these weird sort of calls and, um, they start calling to each other. The male, um, and, you know, they're reased together and they're actually really sort of very affectionate, you know. They're really affectionate. And um, the male actually prepares the hollow. So he he actually makes sure that the hollow is, is ready for him to defend. Mm-hmm. And then the female goes into the hollow. And she's in there for close to a couple of months or over two months. Right. And he defends the hollow for the whole time. So that's why I say it's all got to be really perfect for them to breed and um because he sits he sits right next to that tree that whole time and he hunts for her and he'll come back with the prey and he'll call her and she'll come out and he'll feed her and um it's now, for, just, yeah. for a big
0: species like that, you need a big hollow in a yeah. tree to be able to make a nest. And I guess that uh, brings us to yet another one of the pressures on big bird species like that. And that is the loss of these big tree hollows because we're losing old trees. So tell us a little bit about um, how that uh, plays out, particularly in the suburbs of the big cities, in places that most of
1: us live. Well, the, hollows, the hollow that we have um, is in a living tree um but in our reserve it is the only tree that has a hollow that big and um in a lot of other reserves there may only be two or three or even one hollow that's that's big enough for the owl uh, it has to be quite a quite a major hollow but also deep like yeah. because um they're in there for a long time and um one of the other successful ones I know. Whereby, this is one I was telling you where the where the owl went back in. Um, that's a dead tree. That's a tree that would have been dead for maybe twenty years. And um, so the, the pressures that we have, particularly in urban areas, is to get rid of trees that are dead. Mm. Um, quite often, an, an old tree, uh, a dead tree, will form a hollow or, or have a hollow and become quite a successful breeding site. But we we tend to to get rid of them quite quickly. Um, we tend to remove trees rather than maybe leaving a stump uh, for a hollow to form. And um, the whole habit of, of clearing land has, has made um, hollows even rarer. And when we when we do hazard reduction burns, sometimes what will happen is, is a fire will get into either a dead tree that has a hollow. And the nature of once you have a fire in there, then it will sort of destroy that hollow because it will... Burn it out, um, so. And sometimes, you know, after fires, dead trees get or trees get pushed over mm. um, after they've been burnt, but they can actually become good, really quite if they're left, successful if breeding. If they're left to stand, yeah. Yeah, and and it's not just for owls. Like I mean, sometimes trees have multiple hollows, and there's been actually even, uh, you know, occasions where you'll have. Have the owls breeding in one hollow, and then you might have kookaburros breeding in another hollow in the same tree. Mm, mm. Because quite often they, these trees, which have hollows, ha, have quite successful. And it's really, really once once the owls I've watched, once the owls have left the hollow, it's straight away. Someone's, it's filled with with some other something species. else takes up residence. Yeah, they're just waiting. It's like there's like a queue.
0: So important, isn't it? And I think when we yeah. see the trees, we don't often see the habitat that's like secretly sort of part of that whole um ecosystem that we're looking up at and it's really important that we keep the trees but we're not keeping the trees we're actually losing trees at a very alarming rate these days and especially in the suburbs
1: yeah this this i mean this has been a bad year for us we've um had a couple of occasions of illegal land clearing and um mostly just for views, people just cutting trees or cutting limbs and branches for views or poisoning trees. um, And people also don't realise the significance of the understory. It's not just the big trees, but there are other trees like cheese trees which really form good sort of a really good canopy and um, people just get rid of those. Um, Mm. So, yeah, we we need to value the reason for it and because like because I've I've had so much exposure with these owls I've I've learned to really appreciate how how special they are and um I'm just trying to educate people <laughs> to to realize you know that these these things are here and just just to um yeah you know think about the way you sort of might manage your own backyard um because we've been doing – we've been all home during the last
0: few months with COVID and we've all been madly sort of gardening and planting veggies and getting chooks and getting extra dogs and some of the, these things have, you know, maybe made us feel better about spending time at home, but they haven't necessarily been that uh, beneficial for our native creatures that we share our backyards with. Isn't that right?
1: That is right. Well, it has has been – you know, the um, negative aspect of that is yes, it has been a bad year for wildlife and um – you know, all those elements you talked about, like, for example, like dogs. I know lots of people have got dogs or two dogs now and um, they're letting their dogs roam into into reserves. They're letting them unleashed in reserves. Uh, and, you know, like I was, I was just describing how owls actually go on the ground and will hunt on the ground and they all, all animals go down to the ground to drink. And if there's dogs regularly patrolling an area... Um, even if they don't kill any wildlife, they're, they're going to disturb that wildlife and actually make them not use that area, which is... And, and, and the, yeah, the problem with that is that a lot of areas that are set aside as wildlife protection areas um, all have paths through them and people are all walking their dogs through these paths, whether, whether they um, are allowed to or not. Mm. I see it all the time because I'm always in these reserves and I'm seeing dogs everywhere, you know. Mm. Um, And it's not
0: about not having them and it's not about uh, not letting them out for warts, but it's really about making sure that they walk where they're supposed to because if they're banned from walking, you know, there's probably a very good reason why that is.
1: Yeah, it's being responsible. Really, you know, we we all know that you don't let cats out, um, but, you know, there's been studies which suggest that that dogs um, kill more urban wildlife than cats and, you know, having seen what I've seen, you know, I know that they kill possums, they kill bandicoots, they injure birds um, but um, people just don't see them as being an issue or or a problem. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, it's I mean, it's difficult because everybody loves their dogs so um, it's just sort of thinking about where they are going and what they're doing.
0: And tell us also... Backyard chooks. Now you wouldn't think that backyard
1: chooks would pose a problem, but they do in in a, a roundabout way. Yeah, that's really you know the unfortunately one of the, one of the the the, the um, negative aspects of having chooks is you you, you may end up with rats, and um, so people can put out rat poison, and there are certain types of rat poisons here which are freely available in in Australia um, that uh, accumulate. A lot of rat poison in them and the the rats if they are eaten by the owls can build up toxicity and I know that um, there are a lot of owls sort of dying from excess rat poison you know Um, so that's another thing you really should be um, uh, controlling the way you're baiting your rats um, and the type of poison you're using.
0: And can you choose a poison that's going to be less harmful? Is that is that a choice you can make? Can you go and find out that information and ask? Yes, yes. And there's
1: um, BirdLife's got some really good information on that. But there's a first generation and second generation rat poison. Um, The second generation ones are the worst, and they're actually um, in a lot of other countries, like the states, they're actually banned. Right. From but here you can buy them in the supermarket or the hardware. Um, and it's just education, it's just people being aware of that you know i've se- I've seen it myself But I have um trail cameras i I know that there are um people down the road with the chook pen, and I have actually seen rats come and drink out of my bird bath as they're dying because they want they want to have a drink um so yeah, I'm seeing it, and that sort of worries me mm. because the owls will take those rats.
0: Yeah, and tell us—you know—that that's sort of the bad news. But the good news is, what what can people actually do to to help? What can they do in their own backyards, even if if they haven't heard whether they've got any um, powerful owls, but they certainly have a whole range of other birds coming and, and a lot of wildlife there. What what can people do really to sort of get on board? perhaps listening to what you say about some things people may not be aware of that they're doing and their behaviors are, are doing to sort of harm native wildlife in the backyard but what things can people do simple things to 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 encourage native backyard wildlife
1: well it's it's the way the way you plant and manage your backyard can actually increase the amount of uh, wildlife that is visiting it so so the first thing I, w- I would say if if you want to sort of look after back wildlife in your backyard is to have some sort of water feature um, it can be just a simple bird bath that you that you wash mm-hmm. out regularly or or even a little pond or something but just just a bowl or something will be the first thing that will attract all the the wildlife there the second thing you're going to need is you want shelter so what what you need to do is you you want to build up that whole complex level of um, of vegetation that starts with the insects and then leads to the smaller things like the lizards and the small birds and then the smaller mammals like you might get the gliders or you might have a, um, your possums. So it's building up that little complex area in your backyard. So instead of having the whole backyard area cleared and then maybe a few plants or or maybe somewhere that's mulched and all that sort of stuff, I, I, one way you can look at it is like some golf courses have actually quite a lot of habitat on them and that's because in between the fairways, they've got the roughs. So it's sort of like the same thing in your backyard. It's like planting that area of rough, mm. that rough section where you've got lots of like native grasses or small bushes or prickly bushes or areas that the, the the insects and the small animals can hide out. And then it's just building up that layer. So underneath that or above that, you've got a second story and then a third storey, and you've got these different sort of canopies and different levels on your...
0: And they don't property. need to be native plantings either.
1: No, it doesn't. This One of, one of the um, uh, things in my local council is that there's a tree exemption list where there's a whole range of species that you can actually just chop down without a permit. You don't need to contact the council. You don't need to do anything. And that can include, like, at, at our place, I've got a massive old bunya tree, which I think would be about 70 years old, it is one of the most favourite roost spots for the, the owls. They love that tree, but I could cut it down without even mm, asking the council mm. at all. Um, and same with a lot of species, even though they're native. So, the bunya is a native species, but it's not native to the area. So, there's a lot of um, other species like certain types of palms, there's uh, things like flame trees, which um, might be a significant sort of tree. Um But you can easily get rid of it because um you 're meant to have certain trees that are only only native to that particular mm. area that you 're, and this is this is one of the the problems with these little green fingers, these little habitat pockets is because you may have somewhere that 's been left or a block of land that nobody 's built on for a hundred years or something or has never been built on that suddenly gets subdivided, and then it may be have species. Which are native, but they're not native to the area, and they're because they're on that exemption list Art can just come. be cleared.
0: Out they come, yeah. Yep. So it's uh you know it's 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 interesting just to note that it the, the, they don't need to be native plantings in your garden, and it's a good excuse actually not to do gardening, isn't it? It's good. It's it's actually just garden a little bit if you have to, but you can actually let that garden run a little bit riot and you'll be doing your local wildlife a big favour and you'll also benefit from that because it's there's nothing more beautiful than seeing those native birds coming down into the garden to visit and and maybe to be fed or uh, certainly sort of checking in Um, it's a great sight, and uh, it's one of the things that we're so lucky to be able to enjoy in Australia that in many big cities around the world they don't really get to see very much uh, at all apart from the odd pigeons so I think we should really uh, try and appreciate our wildlife a lot more but I think um, from talking to you today Andrew there's plenty of things that you can do to get more involved And certainly the Powerful Owl Project is a project that you can have. a look. If you can go to the BirdLife Australia website and look up the Powerful Owl Project, that's a great citizen science project that uses an app on your phone, uh, from what I understand, to record sightings. So these are easy ways to start getting involved in local and native wildlife. And I think once you start, a bit like you, Andrew, you can't really stop, can you? It can sort of become a way of life.
1: Yeah and um it it is really rewarding, you know, like the just to to be to get so close to these birds, but also um by building habitat for them we've we've got all these other it's amazing how many species we have, like we have sugar gliders and um you know microbats and all these sort of other wrens and different birds. And even
0: though we we live in these cities and these suburbs, and right that goes for right in the centre of big cities like Melbourne and, and Sydney, we we're creating wildlife corridors between big areas of of uh, built infrastructure. When we have gardens like that, it's not it's not really always about having huge areas of of, of public reserve land, but just by maintaining these sort of wild areas in our gardens, we can create these corridors, and animals can move around.
1: Yeah, well, in a lot of areas. Uh the backyards are the corridors. Um, we haven't actually, the planning didn't allow for a lot of corridors. So in between reserves, the animals are moving through backyards. So your, your backyard can just be part of that corridor if, you, if, you, if you're sort of managing it for the wildlife and they will use it as a stepping stone and you, you'll, you'll be seeing more and more.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. And you don't have to do the gardening either. So <laughs> it's a win-win for everybody. So thank you very much, Andrew Greg. It's just been wonderful to share your experience with the powerful owls. I think um, we'll have some photographs of the powerful owl on our website, on the Australian Geographic webs- website, They've been taken by Andrew, and also some footage
2: yeah.
0: um, of the behaviour. So go to our website and have a look and, and search under powerful owl. Uh, Actually,
1: yeah, I've, I mean, the... Um one of the most amazing things is seeing the owls in the bird bath. I have this huge bird bath that I put in and the actual owls will have a bath in that. So that's something and that was behavior well
0: that probably hadn't been witnessed
1: before. No, no. That was something that um I saw that there was a need for because the creek was drying up in that really bad summer in the, in the um when the smoke was really bad and, and um, 2019, yep, yes. That's right. So, so I'd search for this huge bird bath and they took to it straight away. And it's quite amazing. And it's a
0: simple installation, a bird bath, and then it sort of transformed your experience and probably provided a really important water source for those powerful eyes. That's animals.
1: right. And they, they get in there and actually wash their You can see them washing out their eyes out when, on those really smoky days.
0: Well, it's been lovely talking to you today. Thank you, Andrew Gregory. Thanks for the
1: check. Receive.
0: That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com. Or find us on Instagram, at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find special offers for our listeners, including 10% of all products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Until
2: next time.